You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. One of the things I love about kids, and I, and I try to teach it with our kids, is they stay curious for a while. And somehow that gets squelched for a lot of adults, whether it's just life gets busy or we put everything in the category so it's more comfortable, whatever. Kids ask questions that a lot of us would never even think of. And so I want to ask you, boys and girls in the room, who do you think asks more questions, boys or girls? Boys, girls, I'm not sure. All right, well, I read one study this week where somebody actually did research on this, and they said of kids who ask questions, the kids who ask the most questions are four-year-old girls. Hmm? And all the parents of four-year-old girls said, yep, mm -hmm, it's happening right now. Here's what I want to know, kids. Who, how many questions do you think four-year-old girls ask in one day, on average? 300, a billion, okay. Yeah, that's a lot of questions. Meet your sister after the service. That'd be great. 1,000. I thought I heard somebody say 400. Is that, did I hear that? Isn't the price is right? You can go over. You said 400. She said 400 on here. The answer, based on that study, was the average amount of questions a four-year-old girl asks in one day, 390. And so, ah, there you go. This average. Some of you are like, my kids are above average. <laughs> there we go. And if you want to know how many questions that is per minute, you can do the math right now as you sit in your seat. Hearing that this week, I looked up some questions that kids ask their parents. And so I'll share a few that I found on the internet. This is a brother actually talking about um, his little brother. He said, my little brother, when he was in kindergarten, and he had, we went to the grocery store. He had never seen his teacher outside of the classroom before. And he yelled out to me, who let her out? <laughs> okay. Some of the teachers are going, exactly. Um, <clears throat> One young man to a person with medical tape over their eyes. Now remember, it's a kid. It's a kid, not being malicious. To a person with medical tape over their eyes said, are you a pirate? <laughs> Parents have probably had those moments before. One of the things I love about kids is they don't really have the categories we have. And so it frees them to ask some questions that sometimes we wouldn't ask. I would have never thought of this question until I read it this week. What's faster, fire or dust? I have categories for that. First service, some kid yelled fire, and I'm like, light? Yeah, probably. There's a little scientist in there. One mom on Twitter said that her son asked her what day it is. She said Wednesday, and he said, I don't agree with that, to which she thought, I didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> this week, like every day, Saturday, Saturday. There we go. <clears throat> have you ever, and you don't have to publicly acknowledge this right now, but I want you to think about it. Have you ever wondered, as young as they are, are they already smarter than me? With some of the questions they ask. Every once in a while I think, hmm, like, how did you come to swap at the hospital? What happened here? <laughs> One son asked his dad, Dad, are there infinite words, an unlimited amount of words? The dad said, no, son, but there are infinite numbers. To which the child responded, well, if there's a word for every number, then there must be infinite words. <laughs> you win. I'm done. probably all been asked origin questions before, parents, where do different things come from. One daughter said, Mom, why is your tummy so big? <laughs> Thank you, honey, for asking. No. Mom said, that's because I'm expecting a baby. The daughter asked, where's the baby? The mom, inside my tummy. 
The daughter looked shocked, said, you ate the baby? (laughs) That's not how that happens, and we will not be discussing how it happens in the service. The hardest questions are usually why questions. Here's a few. Why do I have two eyes if I only see one thing? Why can't I see my eyes? Why don't crabs have eyebrows? (laughs) That's a hard one. No, kids aren't the only ones that ask questions. It's actually the job of philosophers to ask questions, to get us to ask difficult questions, and to get us to think deeper. And there was a, a famous philosopher named Epicurus. And he said this kind of in poetic words, and I'll read it to you and explain some of these words for our younger members of the audience here. So he says, it's a why question. It's ultimately why does God, if he is good, allow evil? But here's how he says it. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Omnipotent means all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? That means he is malevolent, which means he's mean and wishes us ill will. Is he both able and willing? Then why is there evil? Is he neither able nor willing, then why is he God? Hmm. I'll tell you, kids, as a pastor, the way that I get asked that question is not usually in a poetic form like a philosopher would ask. But I have people in our church that ask me questions like, why did my spouse leave? Why did our baby die? Why is there abuse? Why are there some people that have no food and other people that have so much? Why, usually asked in a moment of pain, Why a school shooting? Why terrorists into towers? Why? But what many people don't know is that not only does the Bible address this, but there was a day when Jesus asked a why question. I've titled today's message, The Day Jesus Asked Why. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, We're looking at a sermon series called Uncommon Savior. There are a lot of people throughout history that have claimed to be either a religious leader that points people to the way to heaven or the way to heaven, or there's different systems and thoughts and ideas. And in our world, you'll find there are a lot of things, even people who say they follow Jesus, that actually go to functional saviors. But Jesus is unlike any of them. What we've been doing in this series is looking at seven words that came during a six-hour period as Jesus hung two feet above the ground on the cross. Six hours, seven words are not a lot, seven statements. Two feet in extreme agony. Where we're entering into this passage today is the most intense moment of the cross. Now, some of you might think to yourself, whoa, Pastor Scott, uh, family worship Sunday? Kind of a heavy topic. Couldn't we have done like joy in Jesus and just sung some upbeat songs and he tells us all why we're happy and I'll tell you um, three reasons why uh, I'm not doing that today. Uh, one is, if you look at the research of why many of our kids leave the church once they get out of high school, it's not because they've never been in this auditorium when there's uh, main service going on. It's a lot of times because the version of Christianity they've been given is a very sanitized, simple version that doesn't really answer the questions of life. And I don't want our kids to leave because of that. Jesus is real. He's gritty. He's got teeth to him. He's not some imaginary friend that we just make up because we need a crutch to get through life. There are people that present him that way, but that's not what we find in the Bible. And so he answers real questions. You might not like the answers, but he answers them. And we're going to see one of those answers today. Also, 
We have a, an entire family ministry, multiple people on our staff, full-time, paid because of the generosity of your giving on a regular basis, that would love to walk alongside you through this in a more in-depth way, if you'd like, after this time. And it would give them no greater joy in any other time in the future to walk with you and how to disciple your kids. And so I see Pastor DJ sitting here. You saw Pastor Brad at the beginning of the service, uh, Valerie Harris. There are multiple staff members that are dedicated specifically to help you train your kids. And also, so kind of third reason, um, if you're uncomfortable being uncomfortable, this isn't the church for you. And so we'd love to help you along the process. And so today is kind of uh, that process as well. What's happening in this passage is one of the most intense moments on the cross. Jesus has been on the cross at this point for about six hours. Nine o'clock in the morning is when it started. At noon, which is called the sixth hour, so it's not 6 p.m., it's noon, darkness covers the earth. At about 3 p.m., he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at it with me. We'll put it into context. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 45. First word is just now. Now wrapped in that word is everything that's taken place up to this moment. The betrayals, the beating, the beard getting ripped out, the mocking, thorn crown, all of that is wrapped in that word. Now, remember his first words is a prayer, just like he started his ministry. A prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Last week we looked at his next words, scandalous grace. There's a guy who's never been baptized. We don't even know if he's ever even attended a church. Might not even know a single verse in the Bible. And Jesus says to him, great, you want grace? Today, you will be with me in paradise. But today, now from the sixth hour, noon, there was darkness over all the land. Was this an eclipse? Was this supernatural? I don't know. I wasn't there. But it was dark until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's a different language. Here's the translation. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, they were confused. They said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus does not need Elijah to come save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We'll talk more about that statement next week. We said in this series, last words are lasting words. I shared with you last week about Andy Stanley receiving last words from his father, famous pastor Charles Stanley. And I don't know what that made you feel in that moment. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody when they die. And it's often not as pretty as what you see on TV. As a pastor, I've been in those moments with people, hospice or unexpected accidents. But I thought about my own dad. I remember when my dad had a major surgery, came and he lived with my wife and I in our apartment as newlyweds for a couple weeks as he recovered. Then I drove him home. We got in an argument about the best route to take to his house. (laughs) That's kind of how we rolled. And then as I was walking out of his house, leaving, I just said, I love you, dad. And he said, I love you too. And in that moment, there's tension, but still love. Those are the last words that we had. How about you? These are not just last words from someone close. These are our Savior. Um, he dies unlike anyone else. If you've ever been around people dying, it's not usually a moment of strength. He yells in a loud voice. He's not just worn out and life is escaping him. No one takes his life. He lays it down. Remember the conversation he has with Pilate? 
Pilate says, I have the authority to have you killed. And Jesus says, showing that he's the one actually in control, you don't have any authority that hasn't been given to you by my father. He's dying here, and it is painful. And he really does have this question, but he knows theologically the answer. He knows this is why he came. He knows why he's on the cross. He knows what he's feeling, but he's really feeling it. And in a loud voice, my God, my God, why? That's a significant question. Why have you forsaken me? From that passage, I'm going to ask you three questions today. So instead of points, I've got questions. The first one is the longest one. The last one will be very quick because we'll have already given you all the information to answer that question. The first question is this. Why does a good God allow bad stuff? Why does a good God allow bad stuff? And so I've said it in a a juvenile type way, but it's kind of like Epicurus. If you're good... Why is there evil? You either must not be good, you're mean, you're malevolent, or you're incapable, which means how can you be God? And um, If you limit the categories and how you think about those questions to categories that you're really comfortable with, that's the conclusion you'll come to. But much like kids, you don't have the same categories we do. We're talking about an infinite God. And here's something you need to know. You might not like some of the answers we're about to unpack, but it's not because he doesn't give them. And part of the problem might be your view of goodness. And so you see what's happening here. We read the passage already in chapter 27. He's he's entered into evil. There's darkness covering the earth, verse 45, verse 46. It says these three hours, there's darkness. And at some point he says with a loud voice, My God, not Father, that's an intimate way to address God, but my God, my God, why? He's entered into evil. He's come into darkness. Theologically, we know what's happening. John tells us in John chapter 1, it's really bad. Um, Jesus is eternal, John chapter 1. He's always been. He is the light of the world. But John chapter 1 tells us what happens when Eternity, God who is the word, who is light, enters into this world of darkness. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 say, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, oh wait, so the true light is a person. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. It's everything that he created, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's what's happening here on the cross. Darkness has covered the earth. Jesus, who is the light of the world, has entered into the darkness. He enters our evil. There's evidence of evil everywhere. Just turn on the news. Even if you're not a Christian, you will identify and and accept and believe the truth that there's evil everywhere. The two NC State students killed themselves this week. That's not good. It's about four weeks ago, whether you're a Christian or not, it's bad. A small Christian school got shot up and six people died. Or whether you see the Twin Towers go down when a plane goes crashing into it, or whether you see from Columbine on any other school shooting that's taken place, and whether it's a Christian school or a strip club, whether it's a tsunami, and it hits a pagan village or it hits an orphanage. It's all evil. Why? The ultimate answer to that question boils down to, it's really a simple answer, it's sin. 
when sin entered the world, everything began to spiral out of control. I say, well, then why, why didn't God stop sin? Well, if you ever watch a movie or read a book or listen to a news report and things are going according to the pattern that you're used to, maybe it's a love story, maybe it's a crime investigation, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden something twists and goes, that's not what I expected. See, if we were God, then we would probably just not even allow for the capacity, the ability, the option for sin to happen. And then any time something bad was about to happen, a Nashville school shooting, the gun would jam. The terrorists are about to get on the plane, but nope, hey, we pulled you, bumped, uh, somebody's on deck and you don't get to fly. Or, you know, had something in your shoe and we didn't check it, at TSA, they didn't have TSA then, but whatever, you get what I'm doing. Like some reason the car was late, alarm clock didn't go off, we're just thwarting evil everywhere. Why doesn't he do that? What he does is different than what we would do. He enters into the evil. He actually exchanges the evil. He becomes evil. So God became evil. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, if you want to theologically check me on this. He who knew no sin became sin so that you could become righteous. He enters in, he exchanges, and then he exalts himself through the evil. He enters the evil, he exchanges his righteousness for the evil, and then exalts himself through the evil. Here's the reality. He's operating on a plane we have no idea about. We're sitting here looking at our, why did I have a flat tire today? I was supposed to get to work, now I'm not going to get a promotion. Some bigger stuff happening. Why did my spouse leave? Why can't we have a baby? Why? The questions are real. The feelings are real. But if you knew the why, it wouldn't change the what. Hmm. And so why? Well, theologians will give you a few reasons. One of the reasons theologians will give you is because of free will. That's the language that's used. You have choices. You have options. Everybody likes options, right? Kids, you like options? You're doing great. You're being so quiet. Let me have you interact a little bit. Don't you love, kids, that you have the option, whether you go to a Mexican restaurant to get chicken fingers or whether you go to Applebee's, you can get chicken fingers. Isn't that great? Did you ever notice chickens don't even have fingers, kids? Ask your parents about that one afterwards. In the world am I eating this pink juice meat, whatever. Uh-huh, somebody got it. He's picking up what I'm putting down. There we go. Options. If you couldn't choose evil and you couldn't choose anything other than God, then what kind of love relationship is that with God? And so free will gets used in lots of different ways. Let's forget that terminology and just think you've got choices, you have options. And here's the reality, though. Statistically, it's borne out that 100% of all humans not named Jesus Christ who died on the cross have sinned. The Bible says it like this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, then you've got multiple other things happening. And so I'm going to give you some real quick things on a very complicated topic here, just so you know. There's consequences for all of that. There's a ripple effect. Kids, when you grow up, you might hear somebody say, well, that's karma. Well, the Bible says that we reap what we sow. And so the way that I've said it to my kids since they were very little, bad decisions, bad results. Good decisions, good results. And based on your parenting philosophy, you can figure out how that works at your house. But it works as an adult too. But then sometimes stuff happens like a natural disaster. Or what, and as Christians, we can kind of pop our collars and be like, that is right. That strip club with all the rainbows on it, that was God's judgment. Oh, yeah, what about the bus that was on its way to a mission trip that fell off a cliff? Oh, that was Satan. That works well for your categories. But was it? And let me give you something that will make you really uncomfortable with what's happening. 
Um, God planned all this. So we're asking the question, why does he allow evil? We can talk about, for the sake of the skeptic and proving the Bible, that these things were all predicted. And we feel good about that. God planned that his son would be crushed at the cross. Jesus knew the answer because he said it. So yeah, he does rise from the dead, but here he's being crushed. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 are interesting to read. If you are a skeptic, I would encourage you to think through this. The Persians invented crucifixion about three to 400 BC. Isaiah was written in 700 BC. That's about three or 400 years before it was invented. The Bible clearly predicts that it's gonna happen. Isaiah 53, five says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that, was brought, that has brought us peace. And this is the great part. And with his wounds, we are healed. Amen. That's why we gather. But he was wounded. Don't miss that. He became sin. And God planned this out. And it's prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. And there are four soldiers that are at the foot of the cross. And we talked about them last week. And it's their job to make sure that Jesus dies. Each one of the men that are being crucified that day, there were three that day, have four soldiers on execution duty. And these guys are gambling over Jesus' clothes, just like was prophesied would happen, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. But here's what I want you to know. God planned that. Don't miss that. This is the worst sin that's ever happened in human history. They're murdering God, and it was God's. He didn't just allow it, plan. Hmm. To enter our evil. To exchange his righteousness for our evil. And to exalt himself through our evil. That's not how we would do it. I'm glad we're not God. Because we'd all be lost. Think about the darkness that Jesus experiences up to this moment. He's gone through the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what he says in the Garden of Gethsemane? If there's any other way. Kids, someday, somebody's going to tell you, that's great, your Christianity. But there's a lot of ways to get to heaven. If there were a lot of ways to get to heaven, what does it say about God that Jesus has to go to the cross? Is he a monster? There's no other way. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. You don't get here by being moral. You don't get here by asking deep questions as a philosopher. You don't get here by just listening to teaching or agreeing to facts. You've got to have a relationship with Jesus. This is the only way. Enter, exchange, and exalt. See, God's doing some mysterious things here. We've talked about in this series as an uncommon savior. How his death is unlike any other crucifixion. That he's reigning from the cross. This is not asking to be rescued. He's not asking Elijah to come get him off the cross. In this moment, he could call a thousand angels, wipe everybody out, start the whole world over again. No, it's not the plan. Not an issue of ability. He could stop and thwart evil and he could go around policing everybody's evil. And Then do we really have any choices? And instead, he enters in, becomes the evil, and exalts himself through it and invites us into it. That's why he says things like this in his word. James, where James says, rejoice in your suffering. That's an upside down kingdom. So you've got free will, you've got consequences, and you've got that there's more happening here than we could ever fathom. That God's actually using the evil for your good. He, we would stop it. He overrules it and redeems it and then reveals himself through it because we would never have any grasp of his goodness 
without seeing some of this darkness. Hmm. To rejoice. So you want me to rejoice when the school gets shot? You want me to rejoice when the baby... Why and how could we do that? Because what's happening in the evil moments, the scripture is clear to us, and we can't cover every passage, but it addresses this stuff head on all throughout the Bible. There are real answers. You might not like them, but they're really in there. Is that God's doing things bigger than what we see. And so we've got to start looking at this going from God's, not just I don't like this injustice. He don't like the injustice either. But it was through the injustice that his justice was made possible of pouring out the sin of the world on his son. There's 8 billion people in the world today. All the sins of all the people throughout all of history on him in that moment is how God's able to be just and merciful. Righteous and gracious. The wrath. But he's, my God, my God. What's he doing? He's doing something bigger. Your salvation. It's bigger than just that moment. And that's what's happening all the time. There's a situation, we don't have time to read the passage, but in Luke chapter 13, this is a good one to read through and think about on your own in this topic, where Jesus is asked a question about a current event, which is a lot of times what we do, right? Like, why did those planes go into the tower? Why did this, why were these Galileans killed while they were making sacrifices, Luke chapter 13? And we don't know if their motive is to get Pilate against Jesus or if they genuinely just want to know, were these people worse than me? What's going to happen to me? And Jesus starts to answer that question and says, it's not because of that. It wasn't because they're more evil than you or you're more evil than them. And then he talks about another current event, which is there was a tower, the Tower of Siloam, that fell and killed 18 people. That was a big deal that day. Jesus grabs the headline, and then he shows us there's more at work. That looks, from our perspective, like this just terrible event that he should have stopped if he was able to stop. But when you look at it from God's perspective, it's an incredible act of mercy. Because it's showing us judgment does come. And it's ultimately coming eternally. And there are people that will be forsaken in what the Bible calls a lake of fire forever. And every time you see judgment, every time you see difficulty today... This temporary little, it's a warning of greater and bigger and longer disaster coming. It's an opportunity, he says in that passage, Luke chapter 13, to repent. That means to turn. Change your way of thinking, change your life, and turn it from going away from God to going to God. So even those tragedies, you go, well, what, but was it because it was a gay strip club? But what about when it's the bus on the mission trip or it's an orphanage and Sometimes stuff happens because of our own bad decisions and there are consequences that are natural. Sometimes it's just because you live in this world. And it's not directly correlated to something you've done. But you can't, because 100% of people sin, you can't avoid the consequences of sin. There is a passage, kids, that it would be good for you to remember as you make friends. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20 says, The friend of fools suffers harm. You hang around with people that do things that are against God you will experience the consequences of that. Bad decisions, bad results. But you can't avoid all the bad people because you're you. And they're them. And this place is broken. But Jesus enters in. And he doesn't always tell us the why, but here's something you can know. There's always a why. If you knew it, would it really change what you think? 
A lot of people in their time of difficulty will turn to a book called Job. Job chapter 1 is interesting because it breaks down into three different scenes. The first five verses are all about how great Job is. And then when you read it, you'd be like, I'd vote for that guy. That's the kind of guy I want things to go well for in life. Job 1 is being really clear that what's about to happen in his life has nothing to do with his sin. He's a sinner, just like all of us, but it says he is blameless. He's praying for his kids. He's a successful businessman. He's running his businesses with integrity. In fact, if you, if you look at it, the guy's got some stuff, and you go, what, is this good or not good? He has uh, 3,000 camels. I'm going, huh, camels stink. Like, I don't want camel. Have you ever been on a Christmas Eve service where they have a camel? Ever seen that? Pastor Bryce told me he was in one one time, and the camel fell off the stage. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I guess we'll never do that because we don't want to mess him all up on a Christmas. And so what do you do with a camel? Camels were used for transportation. Job owned a transportation business. He didn't just have camels. He had sheep. Sheep are stupid and they smell bad too. And so why have that? Well, they use them for clothes. So he's in the clothing industry. So he's got a clothing business. He's in the transportation business. Um, he had goats. They would use them for milk. It was actually a delicacy. So the guy basically owned a Whole Foods Argon oil, it's on aisle nine, he's got that, so he's got a, a delicacy, he's in the food industry, he's in the clothing industry, he's in the transportation industry, all gone, one day, bankrupt. Financial, natural disaster, terrorism, it's all going to happen in scene three. Because verses 13 through 22, scene three, it's all taken from him and ten kids in one day, in one day. Oh, it's going to get worse. Keep reading. But in one day, all of his businesses, all of his money, and all of his kids die. God's so gracious in the Bible, though, to show us something that Job doesn't know. It's verses 6 through 12. Scene 2 I skipped. Because Job didn't know about scene 2. He's living it. Just like we are in our lives. But what happens is we get to see a heavenly discourse about a spiritual battle that's taking place and God and Satan are talking and you do see the authority of God over Satan in that. But God does allow some things to happen. There is a why. Job doesn't know the why, but there is a why. You need to know and whatever happens in your life, you might not know the why, but there is a why. If you knew it, it wouldn't change the what. But there's more at play than what you see. You know, I joked at the beginning of the message and I said, uh, there was a kid who walked up to somebody at the grocery store and had tape on his eye and said, are you a pirate? Can you imagine if that wasn't a kid? It happens. Adults say dumb things too. In fact, in John chapter 9, there's a guy who was born blind. He's an adult, been blind his whole life. Jesus is walking along with his disciples and his disciples say, who sinned? This guy or his parents that he's born blind? If I were Jesus, I'd be like, you idiots. He's blind, not deaf. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Ask me these questions later. But they ask. And Jesus says, you don't have the right categories. It's not because of his sin or his parents' sin. It's for the glory of God. There's more at play here. A good book to pick up. Randy Elkhorn has a book called If God is Good. And if you only read one part of it, there's a little story. I don't have time to tell you the whole thing about a guy named David who invited Randy Elkhorn to come speak at a conference for people with disabilities. David had cerebral palsy. He said some things that I, Randy Elkhorn, or anybody else that's not disabled in those ways wouldn't be able to say. 
But the gist of it is, he talked about how God has planned everybody's life and how he doesn't just allow deafness and blindness and he's created people for those things. And it's temporary, but there are some people that just aren't going to have the platform without the pain. And what you see is that our pain is God's platform as a megaphone to the world of his glory. At the cross, what we're seeing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that Jesus enters into that pain. The pain was real. The moment was real. Yes, he knows the answer because of sin. This is the plan. This is the only way to redeem you and me. And so he exchanges, he enters, he exchanges, and then he's exalted because he is risen. Amen? The next two points are really quick. Why do I feel forsaken? Why do I feel forsaken in these moments? Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can debate whether he was really forsaken. There's a sense in which he was because the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God. He's paying your debt and my debt. He came to pay a ransom for us. But he's also fully God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, one, inseparable and Oh, it's beyond my pay grade. And because we've got kids in here, I just won't get into it. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> I don't totally understand it, but if I could totally explain him, he wouldn't be who he is. He is not us. He is different. The feelings were real. Why do we feel that way, though? Why do I feel forsaken? I know in my own experiences, when I've gotten myself into isolation, it's usually I feel like God's not listening. It really means he's not doing what I want him to do. I feel misunderstood. No one else could get this. And here's the crazy thing. We do have 8 billion people in our world, and every one of us at some point has felt isolated. How with 8 billion people are any of us feeling alone? There's lots of reasons. One of them is the pandemic. We've got statistics on that. And I just want to say this. Pastor Brad said at the beginning about parents, like, just take a breath. Your kids are in here. We'll be fine. No political statements right now. No one, if you're anti-mask or you're pro-mask, I'm not going to get you rallied up. Some of you are like, man. <laughs> Let's just all take a breath. <sighs> the pandemic was hard on everyone. Here's some statistics. Illness, grief, job loss, social isolation, other pandemic-driven stressors have contributed to an increase in psychological stress on an unusually wide global scale, but I'm going to keep these stats to America. We've seen just at our NC State campus, two suicides this week. 90% of U.S. adults believe the country is facing a mental health crisis. I'm going, what are the other 10% of people thinking? They live on an island somewhere. I don't know. What's going on? The belief is that the pandemic was especially hard on younger people's psychological health. Researchers from Harvard, Northwestern, Northeastern, and Rutgers University did a survey of 21,000 young people from 50 states. Even though circumstances culturally have gotten better, mental health has not. 42% of people ages 18 to 24 reported depression. Researchers believe that these things are harder on younger people because their lives are more dynamic. They're making decisions about school and spouses and lots of things that people that are more settled have already decided. And they're missing significant milestones in their mental development and other pieces as well. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for individuals 5 to 24 years old in the United States. Let that sink in. The second leading cause of death for young people is taking their own lives. 
among girls, 30% said they were seriously considering attempting suicide. 33 out of 10. That's double the rate for boys, up 60% from a decade ago. 60% increase is significant. 20% of girls reported experiencing sexual violence during the pandemic. One-third of kids reported persistent sadness and hopelessness. Alex DeStantic said on CNBC, he's a psychologist and consultant, he said it will take at least a generation to resolve the damage to many young people caused by missing milestones. So not even talking about some of those significant tragedies, just missing milestones that were crucial for their development. Kathleen Ethier, I hope that's how you pronounce it, she works for the CDC, she said, we've never seen, out of 30 years of her researching this data, we've never seen this kind of devastating and consistent findings for the mental health of our kids. There's no question, young people are telling us they are in crisis. The data calls on us to act. We all feel it. Sounds like kids are feeling it even more. Why do I feel isolated? Lots of factors because you take out all the other pieces. We're not even talking about the temptations they have that many of us didn't have with phones. and We're not even talking about the cyberbullying that gets experienced. We know that that has been hard and caused several young people to take their own lives. There's a story of one young girl, Amanda Todd. She posted a YouTube video of the online and offline bullying she experienced where she just kept flipping a paper. It went viral if you didn't see it. And one of the pages says, I'm so alone, I just need someone a few weeks later, she took her own life. The feeling is real. If you're a follower of Christ, you're not alone. That's why he's forsaken, so you never would be. If you're not a follower of Christ, this promise does not apply to you, unfortunately, but you can become one by placing your faith in Jesus. Deuteronomy, Old Testament, I will never leave you nor forsake you. New Testament, Hebrews, interesting context of not being greedy, be content, don't be greedy. Why? For I will never leave you or forsake you. You're not, the danger in your pain is not that God will abandon you, but that you will abandon him. He will, he is being forsaken in this moment so that you will never have to be forsaken. You are not alone. Jesus entered in. He's experienced every, bullying? Yeah, mocked by everybody. Abuse? Oh, yeah. Abandon? Psychological, spiritual, physical abuse? Feeling separated from God? He's taking on the weight of every sin, of every human, of all time. He knows. He sees. He entered. He exchanged. He exalts. But you know what he's doing in this passage when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Bible scholars call this an illusion. An illusion means he's, he's pointing to something that if you know the whole thing, you don't just take the quote, you take the whole thing. Psalm 22 starts off in verse 1. It's David, a long time before the cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says statements like, these dogs have pierced my hands and pierced my feet. They're wagging their heads at me. They're gambling over my clothes. All scholars agree, and this is rare. This is talking about the crucifixion. But it's written way before, and it's David's actual experience. But do you know that Psalm 22 is actually a psalm of deliverance? Because it transitions at verse 19. It starts off, the feelings were real. Why have you forsaken me? 
All these bad things happened. There's nobody here for me. You helped other generations. Where are you for me? Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Verse 20, deliver my soul. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. Why? Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. You think you're alone. You're not alone. He's not despising you. He's not turning his face from you. Don't turn yours from him. And it goes on and it talks about how he'll be praised amongst the congregation, the other people who fear God, like when you gather together with your church. In light of having young people in here today, I love verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. Posterity means the next generation. Descendants. Because of what he's going to do in your life through this pain. Your pain is God's platform for many of you, for your kids to see if your faith is real. Verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness, talking about your kids, to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Mm. So when Jesus cries out, he really feels forsaken, but he knows the deliverance is coming, and the reason he's entered is so you could be delivered. You know, Psalm 22 comes right before Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, why will I fear no evil? Because you are with me. Why? Why evil? Sin. Why do I feel forsaken? He was forsaken, so you never would have to be. So why was he forsaken? Sin, and so you'd never have to be. And here's the real answer. He's an uncommon savior. No one else does this. Philosophers will ask you questions. Jesus is not a philosopher, just asking you a question when he says why. Teachers will tell you a problem and the solution. Jesus is the solution. He is an uncommon savior. The question is, is he yours? You never need to be forsaken. Will you be? Father, we come before you. Thank you for being forsaken for us. We're going to sing a song in a minute. A lot of times we do that, and young people, just so you know the reason why, it gives us time to respond to what we've heard in the, the scriptures. But we encourage people not to sing if their heart's not there. Maybe God's stirring something in your heart, and I'm going to pray words, but I just want, just teaching you, young people that are in here, how church works, you talk to God. He's had a conversation with you I know nothing about part of the supernatural way he's he's woven us together in your mother's womb before you even were a thing he's known you and numbered your days including this one including this moment and so you talk to him in this moment but whatever God's doing in your life if you need to trust Jesus as your savior you just acknowledge your sin we've all sinned acknowledge yours that it separated you from God and that you you need to be rescued you need to be delivered from his wrath from the consequences hell. That's going to be your savior. If you're watching online, maybe you're in another state or country, you've never done that. If you just write something in the comments or send us an email, we'd love to give you more information on how to do that, but it's really, you're just crying out and asking for forgiveness and saying, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. That he's the savior of the world and I want him to be my savior. Some of you are followers of Jesus and you feel forsaken. No, that's not true. He entered in. He exchanged. And he exalted. He got a bigger, there's more happening here than what you can see. And I know in the moment it hurts. The pain is real. We trust him. You don't always know the why. There's a why. He will use this pain as a platform 
maybe mercy and warning to somebody else's life, maybe ripple effect of this world or your own sin. But your next days can be greater than your first. He can restore what, as Joel talks about in Joel chapter 2, the locusts have eaten. Turn to him. Turn to him now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.